Pushkin. Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill-building courses for you to choose from because the steps you choose to take today will help you love what you do in the future. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Tim Ellis builds rockets for a living. He started his career at Blue Origin, the rocket company founded by Jeff Bezos. And then in 2015, he left to start his own rocket company. The company is called Relativity Space. And last year, they launched their first rocket. The launch did not go exactly as planned. Um, launch day. <laughs> a lot of emotions certainly come up thinking about it. There's really no way to describe it. It was actually a new emotion. I don't think I've felt in my entire life. I'm Jacob Goldstein, and this is What's Your Problem, the show where I talk to people who are trying to make technological progress. Tim Ellis is really working on, on a couple of problems. He's working on a short-term problem, which is how can you use 3D printing to make rockets more cheaply and quickly? And then he's working on a long-term problem, which is how can 3D printing help humans colonize Mars? I'm trying not to start with the email to Mark Cuban, but I can't. <laughs> so tell me about your email to Mark Cuban. I really was convinced that 3D printing was going to be a highly disruptive technology and wanted to go try to print a whole rocket, but we didn't really have anything. At the time, I emailed Mark Cuban. Uh, I actually had not even emailed anybody else with a Relativity Space email address. That actually was the first email I ever sent. So I created the Relativity space email address to email Mark Cuban. Uh, the, the idea really came, I mean, I am from Plano, Texas. It's a suburb north of Dallas. Uh, so I certainly grew up hearing a lot about Mark Cuban with Dallas Mavericks. And I, I had a friend at USC um, in, in Los Angeles where I went to college that was an entrepreneur. And I remember he had a blog where I think at one point he just said, you know, Mark Cuban does actually answer cold emails. So it sort of had heard about this, you know, phenomenon from that. So I thought, well, 
you know, I don't know any investors, I actually don't really know anything about starting a company, but I know I need to raise money. I didn't know how to do it. So I just thought, well, I'm going to try emailing Mark Cuban and let's see if it works. So I, I didn't have his email address. Uh, so I had to guess 20 different versions of his email address, you know, mark at dallasmavericks.com, mark.cuban at dallasmavericks.com, you know, mcuban at dallasmavericks, and then I did Gmail. Um, I don't, does anybody have Hotmail or Yahoo anymore? I mean, let's be, my mom does, but let's be honest. So it would be amazing if Mark Cuban did. Yeah, it would if Mark of. Cuban had a, yeah. So, so you guess all these email addresses. Um, and then, you know, from there, I, I, knew he's a busy guy, so I couldn't write a lot of words. Um, and so I just explained, you know, I'm from Plano, Texas. Like, so I led with that and then, you know, quickly talked about that I worked with Jeff Bezos um, personally, which is true for the 3D printing projects. So kind of getting him hooked, making him realize I'm not so far away from him and then showing credibility and legitimacy, especially because I was only 25. But uh, he replied back in five minutes and then said, well, what do you want from me? And so it quickly got into the ask. Uh, and then, you know, that almost felt like being on Shark Tank, I guess, virtually. But uh, yeah, we, you know, we said we were raising half a million dollars. Even that amount was a little bit pulled out of thin air because, again, we kind of just started the company or not even really started yet. Like we hadn't even incorporated yet. It really was the first email we sent. So um, yeah, I, I asked him for $100,000 of a half a million dollar funding round. And then, you know, he replied back almost immediately again, asking, uh, you know, why doesn't Elon do this? Um, I had a, you know, kind of straightforward answer, like, he's just focused on other things. And this is complimentary. Uh, and then he wrote back, well, I'll just do the full half a million dollars. Like he just gave us the whole 500k. We've now done six funding rounds. We've raised $1.33 billion, and um, he's invested in every single one. Were you surprised by his reply when he said he'd give you $500,000? Yeah, hell yeah. <laughs> of course. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I now know just how hard fundraising is, and it's a complete anomaly. So at that time, you're starting this company. Like, what's your dream? <sighs> so we wrote... On the back of a Starbucks napkin, also, or, or Starbucks receipt, I guess, really kind of showing the relationship between 3D printing a rocket and then one day how we see this technology helping build an industrial base on Mars. So I thought, you know, really a lot of the, the inspiration behind starting Relativity Space um, came from this realization that SpaceX had landed rockets and docked with the International Space Station. They were a 13-year-old company. It was super exciting to, to watch what they had done, um, even when I was at Blue Origin. But despite this once-in-a-generation success, they were still the only company in the world that wanted to make humanity multiplanetary and put a million uh -huh. people on Mars. So I thought uh -huh. it was inevitable there has to be a second Clearly, if we're going to put a million people on Mars, there will be you know dozens to hundreds of companies that make this happen. So I thought, heck, we could be the like we are going to be the second company to go try to put a million people on Mars too, because there's clearly going to have to be a person that builds the company, that builds all the industrial base equipment. You know, initially maybe spare parts and other things. So yeah, we could, we could be those founders. And that was something that resonated a lot with me. And uh, it's still true today. So if the dream is to put a million people on Mars when you're starting, what's the 
what's the how you get there part? Yeah. Like, what are you actually setting out to do in practical terms to achieve that? Of course. So, you know, really the first major goal, which has, has now become chapter one of relativity, which we actually just completed, was to 3D print an entire rocket. And then the second big piece was to develop the world's largest metal 3D printer. So tell me about the sort of 3D printing dream. You know, when you're starting out, what's... Yeah. Why is 3D printing sort of the core kind of technical piece or manufacturing piece that you're focused on? Early on, really what we thought was 3D printing was more of an automation technology. And this was the the kind of unseen thing. And I was certainly a user of the technology, by the way, like all of the parts and products I designed at Blue Origin used off the shelf metal 3D printers. So and that's why I started the 3D printing division there, because I really for myself saw firsthand just how great it was to design products that would normally be 20 different parts and you could print them as one piece. And so then you only had to print a single piece and it was a lot faster and cheaper and it still functioned basically the same. But the key thing is it looked super different. So in order to combine 20 parts together and print them, you don't just take an existing product and press print. It really has to be designed from the very beginning for this technology. And I think that was the key thing that made me realize we had to start our own company because a printed rocket and all the way you test it, qualify it, um, make sure it actually works, the material science, like so many pieces needed to be developed from scratch uh, to, to make a whole printed rocket happen. You can't just say, yeah, let's make the rocket the way we're making it, but instead of using machined parts, let's 3D print them. Like that's not the way it works. You have to sort of re-engineer the rocket from the ground up. Exactly. When you're starting the company, what's your thesis simply for why a 3D printed rocket would be better than a traditionally manufactured rocket? A a 3D printed rocket, the thesis really was we can reduce the part count by two orders of magnitude, so 100 times fewer parts. Uh, That really comes from part count consolidation and you print them together as single pieces. We believed we could build a rocket very quickly. So initially, the tagline was building a rocket in 60 days. And then 60 days later, we could build another version. And 60 days after that, another version. So this was the the North Star uh, of where we see the tech getting to. And then the other is cost. So clearly, all of those uh, th- those two things really help us reduce the cost of launch. Uh, and that, that was really it. I mean, at the end of the day, people that are building satellites and need rocket launches, which is our primary business model, just want something that's reliable. It can actually launch their payload and has enough payload capacity. It's cheap and it you know shows up on time. It's a pretty simple Sure, they business. don't care how it's built, right? It doesn't matter to them. They just want it to go to space and not blow up and be cheap. Yep. So it's, as you said, going on eight years ago that you started the company. I know you had your first launch earlier this year. So Just to jump to the moment, like just before that launch, tell me about what you had built. Tell me, tell me about the factory and about the, the 3D printers. Uh, Sure. So the metal printers Relativity's built are the largest in the world. Uh, We had several generations in our factory. When you walk into them, it looks like Westworld a bit. So there's a big robotic arm, six axis industrial robotic arm. There's a print head at the end of it. 
that printhead deposits metal and uses, uh, and, and it, it was lasers at the time, but it's also plasma arc energy. So you basically, you know, using electricity, melt the wire. Um, and wherever the robot arm moves, you just deposit molten metal and, and it solidifies. There's a whole, of course, control system. There's a bunch of sensors that are constantly monitoring this. How big is it? Uh, it's about 35 feet tall uh, for the, the latest versions. Um, can print up to 18 feet diameter. It's huge. Can print a can print a rocket basically. I mean, 18 feet diameter is like the tube of the rocket. Yes, I mean, 18 feet is the the diameter of our next reusable vehicle, which is 3.3 million pounds of thrust. So the big one, big one, it's the, it's yes. the diameter of the yes. big yes. one. But they yeah. also built the ones that we launched, which are seven and a half feet wide. Uh, we okay. had quite a few of these printers, so it really just looked like a a field of robot arms, you know melting metal and in a very precise way very controlled very high quality uh it was actually quite a quiet factory because of this you know there really was not a lot of uh sound the hustle and bustle certainly that's very high energy when you walk in a rocket factory that's actively building a rocket you know there's there's a lot of people around but overall less than you would normally have and uh you know certainly something that looks like the future there's no question about that. This looks like the future. So is there an example of a thing that initially didn't work, didn't work the way you thought it was going to work, and you had to figure out a different way to make it work? Yeah. Well, one was, you know, of course, in rocket engine development, you blow up rocket engines. Uh, in, in fact, I actually encouraged the team to push hard enough to blow one up at some point. Uh, uh-huh. you, you don't want to... Like if you're, if you're not blowing them up, you're, you're not really testing them. Exactly, enough. exactly. Yeah. Um, now, you don't want to blow up the test stand because that tends to, <laughs> tends to um, be a much the slower... The right amount of blowing up yeah, is key. It, it's yeah, it's a slower, slower recovery. Um, but blowing up a rocket engine... Now, yeah, th- there's different failure modes. Um, some are more catastrophic than others uh we were actually fairly lucky we didn't have any that were insanely bad um we had one that was you know kind of kind of rough really early in the program i think it was our fourth ever uh chamber test we were a tiny tiny company um that particular one so i remember watching the flame down in the flame trench slowly creep up a little drip of methane that was still still kind of dripping from the engine at the end of the test, and you just like a wa- fuse almost, almost like a fuse? yeah, almost, yeah. almost, and you just watch this flame, you know, in the slow mo video creep up, creep up, and then right when it goes in the engine chamber, it was just like a bomb just went off. Um, now, of course, nobody was hurt; everything was safe. I got to give those caveats, but it was, yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy video, uh, but. Yeah, you know, it took a few months to go fix that and and to figure it out. So we we're lucky at the time we had three engine tests that had been successful before that. So we knew it wasn't a fundamental problem. It was something we could fix. I think if you blow up your very first engine, that can be kind of hard because then you don't huh. know exactly does it fundamentally work or not. So tell me about launch day, right? This was whatever, seven-ish years after you launched the company, mm-hmm. you're ready to launch the first rocket. Tell me about that day. Um, launch day. <laughs> a lot of emotions certainly come up thinking about it. There's really no way to describe it. It was actually a new emotion. I don't think I've felt in my oh. entire life. Uh, it, 
was at night. So we had to launch at night due to the um, air traffic kind of coordination. It was around spring break. Um, so we wanted to be a good kind of airspace you know, citizen, so to speak. We weren't really sure what it was going to look like, by the way. So this is also the first methane-fueled rocket to ever attempt orbital launch outside of China. Um, China does not show photos or videos of launches. So this literally was the first time the world was going to see a methane-fueled rocket fly. That was the other bit, big thing. Uh, so we didn't know what it was going to look like as it was launching to, to orbit. And so when it, you know, it ended up, uh, of course, a lot of the activity at this point, we had, you know, about a thousand people at the company. But so the team didn't need me to do anything. Like they're extremely coordinated, trained. They know exactly what they're doing. Um, there's, it, it was at Cape You're just getting in the way at that point? No, I You're mean. bothering no. people? <laughs> no, I, I, I think I do a good job staying out of the way. I was just enjoying it. I, th- I think that was yeah. the biggest thing. You know, certainly I was on the hook for whatever happened. Um, to be clear, this is a first launch. No company had ever reached orbit in the world and in, in history on a very first launch. And the the mood is intense. Like you are getting kind of constant pings over the radio, hearing as we're loading propellants, you know, preparing the rocket for flight. Um, you know, each step there's different troubleshooting and things that are happening live because you you know a, lo- a lot is automated, but it is all happening for the first time. You have tens of thousands of sensors and data channels all over the rocket. It is a very complex uh, coordination. So even though people are well trained, there's on the fly you know, is this temperature okay on the batteries? Is it, you know, it's out of bounds. Like, is it okay? So there's like whole teams of engineers just going and doing calculations and coming back and saying, yes, we're good to go. You know, the winds are are, are a big issue. So we're launching weather balloons and tracking wind data to make sure the winds aren't too strong, not not at the ground level, but way up in the atmosphere, because that's a huge factor of uh, launch success. There's boats and we have Coast Guard people chasing boats that are in the violation of the keep out zone with like you know we had like people with ak-47s trying to tell them like hey you're you know illegally in this zone like you got to get out of there we had a navy plane take off from an aircraft carrier in the middle of you know almost the launch window as it's counting down uh so it's kind of controlled very very controlled um but very intense because all of these things are popping up even at the point of you know getting down to just a few minutes to the to the launch countdown and just to be clear this is a a purely a test flight right there is no commercial payload on it there's no people on it the the basically just launching the rock yeah correct this one you know some companies decide to have a payload on the first launch we decided not to Um, we ended up flying the first the very first uh shavings of a 3d printed part that we ever made seven years ago um so the idea behind that was you know, all of the failure we had to overcome to get to this point, like we're, we're launching that story. Um, I had my Starbucks uh, receipt. Um, you know, the, uh, every employee got a photo, that kind of thing. But yeah, no, no uh-huh. payload. So, okay. So it's time. What? Like, it's time for the rocket to launch. So as 60 seconds was counting down, 
the energy is high. Now, now we had, it's very normal for a rocket launch. At first, we had two other uh, attempts that happened in daylight. They got very, very close to launching. Actually, one of them even ignited all, all the nine engines and then aborted. So at the time that you're several minutes close to the flight, it's really 100% automated. And then once you're uh, under 70 seconds, it, it literally is automated. So if anything happens, it just aborts and saves itself. It's all software driven. So we had had a few other launch attempts that just, you know, a sensor was off or some temperatures slightly drifted because a lot of complex things are happening in those final 70 seconds. So that's also actually contributing to the anxiety and, and the um, you know adrenaline is you actually don't yet know, is it definitely going off or definitely not? Of course, it's counting down. So in the engine's light, it holds down for several seconds in, until they get up to full thrust. Uh, there's a bunch of health checks, you know, which are all automated on the rocket. And then there's the final command that sends, which has release. So right when uh, what, what are called the rocket holdbacks or, or hold downs release uh, back, then the rocket moved up and I saw ice, you know, start kind of falling off of it all over the place because it's really cold propellant. So there's ice all over it. So this ice just like, you know, kind of cheers off of it and looks like a stardust or, or something coming off. Uh, so right when that happened, you know, the engines had already been lit. It's like this crazy blue and purple and orange flame, like methane rockets look really, really insane compared to normal rockets. I waited for that moment. I absolutely had planned I was going to run outside. So I had the path already set and you know, kind of like very, very quickly, but also uh, careful not to trip and fall, went out the door and uh, w- went around the corner. And I just remember the feeling of opening the door and right when you open it to go outside, it just nails you in the chest. I mean, r- rockets, of course, are really intensely powerful. I'd seen engine tests before, uh, but yeah, you just immediately feel this like fluttering kind of almost like somebody's pounding your chest a, a little it's bit. It's the sound. It's the sound that oh, is causing yeah. that feeling. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's so loud. Super loud. And then uh, I turned around the corner. So I basically heard it before I saw it, then turned around the corner and then, you know, just a, a hundred or so feet in the air um, was just this rocket flying. And there's a crazy bright blue flame. It looks like looking at a star, you know, being launched to space. I mean, it, it, videos really don't do it justice. It is, it is so much brighter and so much uh, cooler looking in person. And then you just feel energy in the air. Like the air almost feels dense and thick. And it sounds like a whip cracking plus sub bass, you know, just at 11 out of 10 intensity. Um, so, so it feels alive. Like that. that's what's so cool uh, microphones and video really just don't capture the feeling of a live launch because it, it's like, yeah, just very visceral. And then of course, people around me are like screaming and cheering and cry- crying, you know, people are like literally crying, like viscerally and saying, oh my God, oh my God. Like, it's like a pretty religiously, spiritually kind of intense experience. Just just because all the hard work and tears go go into it it was out of our control at that point the rocket flies autonomously nobody can do anything um, but it, we needed to get past 80 seconds so that was the goal of this mission was to prove the 3d printed structures were actually strong enough to survive in flight um, that was the you know very unique technology my personal goal was to get to space i i think you know that was above the company stated goal but i did really want to get to space on the first flight and have a full first stage you know, successful launch and stage separation. That was really what I wanted. Um, 
and so you know i was watching kind of the live stream i had my iphone next to me but also just watching live but at least on the the uh, youtube live stream they were calling out different milestones and i was looking for that 80 second mark uh to to really make sure yes we did it um so i remembered when we passed 80 seconds um, you know, of course, everybody started screaming and cheering because that was full mission success by what we were concerned with. Um, and it was still rumbling. It was still definitely visible. It was just like a bright blue streak that went across the sky. Um, but then as we made it to space and then had stage separation, you know, that that was, for me, the the moment where I really started celebrating. And then what happened? Yeah. So, so then, you know, I was looking at the live stream. Um, it became clear that the second stage engine didn't light. It tried to light. So at first I actually thought, thought it did because um, there was just some sputtering of flames, but they went out. So it was clear that that second stage didn't light. We weren't going to make it all the way to orbit. Uh, so then I went back inside. Um, you know, of course, at that point, the the team's mood is much more serious, like we're in data collection mode, uh, you know, we're working with the FAA mode um, to save everything. Everything there was good. Uh, then I went down into the basement, so kind of took over where the, the live stream recording was, and then just addressed the overall team. And what, what happens to the rocket when the second stage, like, does it blow itself up? Does it fall into the sea? What happens? Um, yeah, it, it actually just goes and falls in the Atlantic Ocean. So it's way out in, in the middle of the ocean at that point. And then we use satellites later to determine that it you know, did actually sink. You know, at that point, it's you know, more than 10,000 feet at the bottom of the ocean. Um, so, so, you know, we, we kind of do all the proper steps to make sure that things are taken care of from a safety perspective. And so you were saying you went and talked to the company. Yeah, it was, it was talk, talk to the company, um, address everybody. And then from that moment after I felt like then I was kind of off the hook, you know, so it's definitely very, uh, I was very on up until that point. And then at that point I could stop and then just start to let, you know, what happened, uh, sink in. We'll be back in a minute to discuss the rocket that Tim and his colleagues are working on now. Also, Mars. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wisefriend. Okay, 10 seconds. How many things can you name that are always growing? The universe, easy one. Um, my kids, so far... Uh, to-do lists, uh, for this month, my sugar snap peas, 
I know that's not always. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to give you one more. Businesses on Shopify. <laughs> Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. There are key moments in every endeavor. I ask pretty much everybody I interview on this show about their key moments, their breakthroughs, their failures, their turnarounds, and Shopify can be there for you at all of your key moments. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash problem. Go to shopify.com slash problem now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash problem. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. After that test launch, Tim and his colleagues talked to their customers and potential customers, basically companies that want to launch satellites. And based on those conversations, they decided to develop a much bigger rocket. The one they're working on now is 270 feet tall, which is about as tall as a 25-story building and more than twice as tall as the rocket they launched last year. So what we're doing for the next three years is building and testing a ton of hardware. So we're constantly, almost every week, doing engine testing, collecting data, using that data to then 3D print new versions, which slightly tweak the design. Um, th this is really the, the big competitive advantage of printing is you're able to iterate the design very quickly. So this is really the, the kind of core principle of development is doing that first at very small component levels and then building up more and more into a full engine and then a full rocket stage, uh, which would have 13 engines on it. We'll actually test that on the ground uh, before flying. And then it, so at the time of flights, by the time you actually fly the rocket in 2026, uh, almost every component on the rocket has already gone through several flight-like environments for a full duration. And yet, like, if history is a guide, it still probably won't work, right? Like, that's how hard it is. Uh, yeah, Re reaching orbit on a very first rocket is difficult. Like, it would be very reasonable for you to do all this work for three years and for it not to work the first time, because that's yeah. the way it works. Yeah, that, that wouldn't be a total, you know... It, like like company ender, for example, we we would plan for that. Yeah. The trick is, how do you make a rocket be successful and not have a government's budget uh, to, to 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 subsidize it? I mean, so NASA is successful on first launches all the time. You know, the Europeans are. Um, uh -huh. You know, national security launch vehicles generally because they are. spend way more than a private company would ever spend. Correct, because they really don't want it to fail. Yeah, exactly. So the trick is, how do you get a low cost rocket, which is highly reliable, to be successful? So it's an interesting like optimization problem at some level. Yep. Of like, basically, when do you launch? Like, you don't want to launch too late, weirdly, right? Yes. You don't want to be too sure it's going to work because that's probably too expensive. Correct. You, you, you have to have a macro view of 
you know, the overall company. And, and ultimately, I think this is a pretty interesting lesson learned just in the industry on iteration. So if you look at, you know, SpaceX's uh, reliability record, for example, is, is extraordinarily good. Um, but how you get there is a different solution. So traditional aerospace, like you mentioned, needs to get it perfect on the first try. So NASA, everybody does. And that's sort of for like governmental political reasons, right? Like they have a sort of different yeah. constituency than a private company. They're not optimizing for the kind of... Exactly. Well, they're not so cost constrained. E- yeah, that, that's all true. And, and optics, you're definitely right. They have a different incentive structure. But what's interesting is if you take an approach that we're doing and other commercial companies do, where you build and test a lot of hardware on the ground before you actually do the flight, um, and then you practice a lot, that actually creates a very robust product. So there, there is a um, you know kind of study that I, I refer to a lot internally, where a professor divided an art class into two uh, groups. They, he gave him an hour to make clay pots. One group, he said, make as many clay pots as you possibly can in an hour. The next group, he said, make a perfect clay pot. And so one, he said, make as many. One was a kind of bid for quality. But then at the end of it, what he didn't tell them is he was just going to judge both groups based on quality. So what was interesting is the group that made as many as possible actually were were almost always considered higher quality, even though he literally Uh didn't tell them to make something that looked good. Reps. Reps, reps are underrated. Reps yeah. are underrated. Um, tell me about Mars. We started out talking about Mars uh, as like the big dream. Hmm. Tell me more about your dream for relativity space and Mars. Well, I really want relativity to be the company that builds an industrial base on Mars. Meaning like factories to build stuff on Mars as opposed to rockets to go to Mars? Exactly. Or in addition to? So I, I thought well, somebody's got to build the factory. It has to be small, lightweight, uh, be able to build a wide range of products with very little human labor because you know, people on Mars won't be quite abundant. Uh, and, and so all of those North Star parameters defined an intelligent 3D printing system. So that was where I, I got to this idea that 3D printing has to be a part of building infrastructure on Mars if it's going to be a self-sustaining uh, city and, and civilization. What's whatever the first thing a factory like that would make. Yeah, so I think it's going to start with things like spare parts and things Uh that potentially break on rockets. Um, So I imagine most early missions will actually launch some form of 3D printing system, really just as a way to to make the mission more robust uh, in Uh in case something went wrong. Because when you're that far away, you're like nine months away from really getting any extra supplies and and is the advantage of of 3D printing there that like ideally you can basically have one 3D printer that can make a very wide range of parts exactly. as opposed to traditional manufacturing where kind of you need one machine to make one part and it can't make any other part yep ex- more or less yep exactly so you can pre you don't need as much pre planning and there's a lot more flexibility for what you can build uh-huh. so it's a, a rocket spare parts factory yeah. is basically the first i think that's the very first thing that's likely and and we actually have at relativity a mission that that we have a partnership with the 
uh, co-founder and former CTO of SpaceX, uh, this guy, Tom Mueller. He started his own company. Um, we we're actually planning to launch uh, Payload to Mars uh, with, with, with his company. So we have uh, multiple launch windows through 2029 uh, to be able to do it with them. And that, So wait, just to be clear, you're providing the rocket and yes. he's providing the payload? Yes, uh-huh. we're providing the rocket. He's providing the Mars transfer vehicle, the reentry vehicle, and the lander. Um, but I do think, you know, we haven't announced what the payload will officially be yet. I, I personally think it'd be very cool to send some sort of 3D printer. I think that's probably expected. Uh, but why that's cool is that would actually be the first object ever manufactured by a human being off planet. And I do think that's uh, just starting to show we can build things um, is a really big part of uh, of taking the first step, uh, so to speak, towards one day having a robust civilization. We'll be back in a minute with the lightning round. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you get there? There are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. That dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, health, and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org wisefriend. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. Okay, last thing to do is the lightning round, uh, which is just a bunch of fast questions. Um, so in high school, I've heard you say that you wanted to be a writer and that you actually wrote a couple novels. So I'm curious, mm-hmm. 
What's your favorite novel? Yeah, um, I think, so the novel that brought me to Los Angeles is a book by Brett Easton Ellis called Less Than Zero. Um, no, no relation to my amazing last Amazing that that made you want to go to Los Angeles. I know, it is actually amazing. Um, <laughs> what's one thing you, you think everybody should know about how rockets work? Um, you know, okay, this is an interesting one. So I think there's a lot of focus on the rocket engine, you know, the tube, the structure you can see. I think what actually makes rockets hard is actually a lot of the ancillary systems. So pressure, you know, rockets need to be pressurized. They need to be filled, drained, safe, successfully. Um, there's different systems you need to start them up, to shut them down. It is the kind of details and the, the you know, non-sexy systems that are, you know, firing fire that, that actually get a lot of uh, conversation time internally because that's what can make a good rocket versus one that doesn't work. What's the over-under on what year you think you'll go to space? Mm. What year I go to space? I think, I hope, I hope by 2030. I think that would be pretty cool. Pretty soon. Yeah. That's pretty that's, soon that's for going to space. the next seven years. Yeah, it depends on suborbital versus orbital. Um, yeah, I think in the next seven years, going suborbitally would be would be possible. Definitely, yeah. You think it'll get cheaper? Or you think you'll be able to do it because you own a rocket company? <laughs> uh, I, I, I think it will get cheaper. I certainly hope it'll get cheaper because I, I know how much it is now and it's uh, it's not the advertised price. It's expensive. Um. Was it scary to leave Jeff Bezos' rocket company, to leave Blue Origin, in order to create a new company that would then compete against Jeff Bezos' rocket company? Um, well, competing, <laughs> competing against Jeff is, you know, he's a, he's a capable guy. I think Elon may be more crazy, more irrational um, from, from a competitive standpoint. But but no, I was inspired. I think at the time, you know, I was 25, my co-founder was 22. I felt we had very little to lose by trying. I think in hindsight, I realized just how you know young, spunky, kind of naive maybe we were about the, the challenges. I can definitely tell you it's been way harder than I ever expected to get to this point. Maybe necessarily naive, maybe usefully naive. Oh, definitely usefully naive. I think that was a big benefit. What's one thing that would surprise me about Jeff Bezos? I think Jeff really, when, yeah, he, he is actually really patient. So whether it was, you know, when his vision of Blue Origin with people living and working in space and industrializing kind of orbit offer, I thought that was the, the vision and um, that he was willing to do it in a way where even if he doesn't see it in his lifetime, he doesn't care. Huh. But, but, he doesn't carry to a degree that just felt very unusual to me. Interesting. I mean, you don't think of Jeff Bezos and think, oh yeah, I bet that guy is super patient. Yeah, exactly. But, but no, he, he, he really is. Um, yeah, he really is. What do you think? What do you think of the chances you'll go to Mars before you die? I have this vision of myself being, very old and uh, sitting in kind of a beach chair with a beer under some sort of biodome <clears throat> on Mars and that being, you know, where I, where I kick it during retirement, I guess. Kind uh, of like Arizona, but farther. Yeah, but, but, you know, under a big glass dome, exactly that kind of thing. So, 
you know, I, I, I do have this vision of, of being there. Um, but I would go towards the end of my life. I think it, it'd be a cool, I mean, could you imagine a crazier end cap to, uh, to, to your whole life by just being on Mars, especially since that's something I'm dedicating my life to make happen now with relativity. I think that'd be, you know, pretty, pretty cool ending. Tim Ellis is the co-founder and CEO of Relativity Space. Today's show was produced by Edith Russolo and Gabriel Hunter Chang. It was edited by Lydia Jean Cott and engineered by Sarah Bouguer. You can email us at problem at pushkin.fm. And please do email us. I try and read all the emails. Uh, I'm Jacob Goldstein, and we'll be back next week with another episode of What's Your Problem? Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're really choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. If you're looking for a new podcast but don't know where to start, here's one you can add to your list. The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show is aimed at making you a better informed critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening. Jordan talks to everyone from neuroscientists to CEOs to astronauts, authors, and performers. You might enjoy Jordan's interview with historian Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, or his episode with Fool Me Once author Kelly Richmond Pope on how fraud became a trillion-dollar industry. Whether Jordan's conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life in every episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way, or it could just be discovering a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts.